Well, many of you know the background to the hymn that we just sang. But even so, it's worth remembering or hearing it for the first time if you haven't. It is Well was written by Horatio Spafford after a series of tragedies in his life. The first being the sudden death of his only son. Shortly after was the Great Fire of Chicago, which wiped out all of the family's extensive real estate investments. Not long after that, Spafford decided to take his family to Europe for some repose. At the last minute, he was detained with business, and so he sent his wife and four daughters ahead, and he would join them on the other side of the Atlantic as soon as possible. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship carrying his wife and daughters was hit by another ship. What are the chances of two ships colliding in the middle of the Atlantic? Both sunk. His wife was rescued, but all four of his daughters drowned at sea. Upon getting the news, Horatio, quickly as possible, boarded, uh, boarded a ship to reach his grieving wife, who is now in Wales. And when the ship reached that approximate place where his daughters perished, these words came to his mind. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. History's filled with stories of God's saints trusting him amidst great suffering. The Bible, too, is filled with examples of great suffering with great trust in the Lord. And one of the best of those in the Bible is with David. When he was anointed king to be, but wasn't yet. Rather than reigning, he was running. Running from the current and godless king Saul, his own father-in-law. The truly anointed king of Israel in those days was public enemy number one. He was number one on on Judah's most wanted list. He was chased by Saul into the wilderness and all through the wilderness. He was constantly on the run. He refused to take matters into his own hands. He refused to truly war with Saul. David instead operated with only evasion. That was his M.O., trusting God instead to bring about what God had promised in God's way and in God's time. We'll see that again today in 1 Samuel 23. Would you turn there? 1 Samuel 23, if you have a Bible with you today. As we return to our study of the book of 1 Samuel, a story of Israel's first kings, Israel's first two kings, really, there was the people's king, you could call him, Saul, a big man, impressive, a king like the nations. Religious, yes, but not a man who walked with the Lord, and that's been increasingly apparent throughout his downfall in recent chapters. On the other hand, there's God's man, David, the man of God's own choosing, a man after God's own heart. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 23 and 24 today. In these two chapters, we see several encounters, 
David encountering several different people or groups of people, all in varying degrees of proximity. Some are very close up and personal and others more distant. But they're scenes of David relating to someone else. Hence, that's your outline on the sermon notes page on the back of the bulletin if you're following along there. You see six different encounters or encounter-like things, David relating to someone else or some other group of people. The first is David and Keilah. Keilah. The theme here is salvation and betrayal in the first half of chapter 23. Salvation and betrayal. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 23 where we see the salvation part of that equation. Now they told David... Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise. Go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David saved them. Once again, we see David acting more like the king than Saul. Saul's nowhere to be found in the first five verses here, despite the great threat on his people in the city of Keilah. Remember from the last chapter, chapter 22? Remember how far from Saul caring for his people? We saw, we saw Saul not caring for his people, but destroying his people. Anyone who sided with David whatsoever, helped David at all, they were destroyed and their family, and those they've worked with and were related to. Even the whole city of Nob was destroyed for its part, for Ahimelech's part, the high priest, his part in aiding David. Saul was a destroyer of his own people, and yet David here has compassion. He cares for them. He intercedes for them. But now we come to the betrayal part of the story with David and Keilah. Look at verse 7. Now it was told that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So from there, Saul and his men went to Keilah to besiege David, it says. And somehow David hears of that plan of Saul, and so he inquires of the Lord Once again, read verse 10 and following. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Betrayal. 
They turned on their Savior, the one that rescued them, the one that was good to them, that had compassion on them. This has Jesus written all over it, doesn't it? David interceded for the people of Keilah. He saved them. He laid his life down for them, dare we say. He did so when no one else would, not Saul who should. Even David's valiant men, they were afraid, just like Jesus' disciples. When he turned his face towards Jerusalem, as the gospel accounts tell us, they said, are you sure we should go there? It seems far too risky. But David had compassion on Keilah. He interceded for them. They were his own people, and they betrayed him. Like Judas, they were willing to turn him in. So it was with Jesus, John 1 tells us, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Now in David's case, the outcome was a military victory and the salvation of Keilah. In Jesus' case, it looked like defeat at first. He died on the battlefield of the cross. But that wasn't truly defeat, was it? It was ultimately his victory, as the resurrection proved. It was ultimately our salvation. He interceded for us. 1 Samuel is filled with subversive themes, that God works in inversive ways. Strength and weakness, not the mighty, not by sword or spear, but simply by the Lord. David and Goliath was a a perfect case in point on that. Here in chapter 23, it's David's 600 men going up against the Philistines. We're not told how many Philistines there were, but likely it was more than 600. And David simply has 600 ragtag followers, not elite soldiers. Yes, 1 Samuel's filled with these subversive themes of God working in inversive ways. But none of the stories of 1 Samuel compare with the glorious, inversive wisdom of the cross of Christ. The cross looked absolutely foolish. It looked like complete defeat. It's a stumbling block. The cross is not just Jesus' death, but it's a, a criminal's death. It's not just a a criminal's death, it's a cruel death. It's not just some accidental death, but it's at the hands of his enemies, hence it looks so much like defeat. Not just enemies out there, but his own people. And not just his own people, like a faceless, impersonal group of, of a nation, but no, even one of his own 12 Disciples turned him in, gave him up. Just as God planned. Just as he planned. It was the plan all along. It was our salvation. It was how God would be glorified. It's how the plan would be complete. It's how he interceded for us, the cross. Well, back to 1 Samuel. After being told by God that Keilah will surrender him to Saul, David and his 600 men, it says in verse 13, they went wherever they could go. Remember, Saul thought he had them blocked in. He's at the front door of the city, you could say, and it's walls all the way around. We got them. 
We don't know how David got out, but they went wherever they could go, and they escaped. David and his men, you see in verse 14, they went out to the strongholds in the wilderness, again on the run, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, within these same verses of the first half of chapter 23, there's another important theme that deserves specific and special attention. It's a theme, actually, that we've talked about and seen a few times before in 1 Samuel already. And it has to do with the priest or the prophet being, in essence, the presence of God among his people, the mouthpiece of God to his people. It's God speaking to his people. So within these verses, there's a second encounter. David and Abiathar, the priest. And here the themes are guidance and protection. We already saw in verse 2 that David inquired of the Lord, should I go attack the Philistines? And, and God answered him. And then when his men were fearful, David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him. But in verse 6, we're reintroduced to this guy, Abiathar. Abiathar is the son of Ahimelech, the deceased high priest. Abiathar is now the only priest. So in verse 6, when it talks about Abiathar coming to David, it looks like a throwaway line. It looks like a, a simple parenthesis. You could pull verse 6 out of the Bible, and the narrative flows quite smoothly, maybe even more smoothly. It says, when Abiathar fled to David at Keilah, he'd come down with an ephod in his hand. We're not told till later why this is important. And the later is in verse 9, the second half. After hearing of Saul's encroachment, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. The ephod was the high priest's garment. It was a symbol of God's presence, kind of like the Ark of the Covenant was. This is how God spoke. This is, it's a symbol of his presence and his revelation, his communication. So when we're told in verse 6 that Abiathar fled to David and he came down with an ephod in his hand, and then we're told in verse 9 that David said to Abiathar, come here and bring the ephod. It's then that David prayed to the Lord and asked for insight whether Keilah would betray him or not. And once again, the Lord spoke to David. And here's what all this means. David was with the priest. David now has access to God, and Saul doesn't. David has God's presence, not Saul. David has God's revelation and his guidance. So now here's a second contrast between Saul and David moving from chapter 22 to 23. The first being that Saul destroyed his own people while David cared for and saved his own people. The second contrast being that in chapter 22, Saul was desperate for information, berating his men. How is it that no one discloses to me that my son has made a covenant with my enemy? And remember, none of the men spoke, just crickets. 
No one whispers in his ear. Only Doag, the Edomite, the foreigner. He's the only counselor, you could say, Saul has. Not a religious counselor. Not a spiritual guide. But David has the priest with the ephod, meaning he gets his inside information from God. He has God. God tells him what to do. God tells him green light or red light. Now, we should clarify how God usually guides, especially today. God can speak today just like he did to David back then. He's not limited, and he hasn't limited himself. But it's not normative. What we read here in 1 Samuel 23 is not normative, at least for us today. It was normative back then for David. That's, that's what he knew. It was normative when God spoke directly and audibly to Abraham, and then to Noah, and then to Moses. It, it was normative for the people of Israel when God spoke in a cloud of fire, or shook Mount Sinai with his voice. God speaks through a prophet or a priest. All through parts of the Old Testament, we see it again and again. We've seen it a number of times in 1 Samuel. But when you get to the New Testament, you, you get at least a mixed bag. You see in Acts, the missionaries and apostles deciding where to go next. Sometimes God says, go into such and such a city, for I have many people there. Or don't go here. And it's just audible or it comes through a prophet, but it's clearly God speaking. And other times in Acts, you simply read sentences like this. It seemed wise for the apostles to go to such and such a city. It seemed good for us to stay in such and such a city. It seemed good. It seemed good. The point is this, it would be presumptuous for us today to expect God to always do what he sometimes does. It'd be presumptuous for us to expect God to do for us what he did for, say, David, the king, the anointed one, the lowercase m, Messiah of the Old Testament. I mean... God cares about all his people, right? He, he cares about us. He cares about our lives. But let's be honest, we're not Moses's and David's in the plan of God, in redemptive history. God was doing a specific thing at a specific time in a specific way using specific men, and he led them in miraculous and visibly and audibly powerful ways. He could, but we shouldn't presume upon that. And we should remember that unlike the saints of old, we have the whole of Scripture in our very hands. You want to know the will of God? Read this and do this. He guides us. He guides us infinitely more here than how he guided David even back then. And yet we can rejoice with David and with all the saints that the same God the God of Abraham, Noah, and Moses, and David still guides his people. He still protects his people. He still leads his people. In David's case, the guidance here in 1 Samuel 23 is for his protection. 
protection. God says, it's coming, and so David flees. David is the Lord's anointed. He's the one who will not be let, uh, will, it will not be let, it will not be so that he, he dashes his foot even upon a stone. He, he's protected. He, he's, he's God's man for God's purpose at God's time. As it says in verse 14, God would not give him into Saul's hand. Here's a third encounter. David and Jonathan, a strengthening friendship. David and Jonathan. Verse 15 begins with ominous words. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life while he was in the wilderness of Ziph. You can imagine the scene, right? If it were shown to us in a movie, you can picture David up in a cave at a high level. He's looking down on the plain, and he sees Saul and his 3,000 men, no doubt with chariots, in armor to the hilt. And he sees it. The camera would zoom up on David's face. Maybe his eyes would get big. Maybe the bass would sort of roar in the theater if this were a movie you'd know this is an ominous moment. And the narrator of 1 Samuel wants us to read verse 15 just like that. This is the first time that he says David saw Saul coming. Every other time he's heard about it or he's just fled ahead of Saul coming. Now he sees it. But as quickly as our palms begin to sweat for our brother David, the next verse turns a corner. Someone else is coming to David who's no threat at all. It's his best friend. It's his right-hand man. It's Jonathan. Look at verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant again before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is the last time these two friends will see each other. But oh, how sweet it is. In such short words, we get such a powerful picture of godly friendship Jonathan showed up and he strengthened his hand in God here we have an Old Testament example of what the New Testament calls fellowship encouragement the one another's love one another put up with one another encourage one another strengthen one another teach one another This is what godly Christian friendships are to do. Not just be there, not just listen, not just tolerate and be nice, but strengthen each other in God. This is what community groups are for. This is why we're here together today. This is why we meet together as a church, to strengthen each other in the Lord. So in Acts 15, we read of Judas and Silas, who encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's why short sermons should be an oxymoron. With many words, they strengthened the brothers. 
Hebrews 10 tells us that we should consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. How great are godly friendships. May we, after reading this of Jonathan, his example, re-strengthen David's hand in the Lord. May we be encouraged to be better godly friends with each other. And may we also be reminded that Jesus is a better Jonathan. Isn't it amazing that the New Testament calls Jesus our, our friend? Jesus himself said in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He calls us friends. From there, the next several verses talk about how we're friends. He calls us friends. No longer enemies or servants, but friends. He tells us what he's up to because we're friends. I can't help but think of Paul's last letter. In 2 Timothy 4, he said, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The invisible Jonathan. And how much better than Jonathan. Jonathan had to go away. Again, it was the last time that David and Jonathan would see each other in Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother for good. Fourthly, we see David and Ziphites. Yes, Ziphites. Exciting, huh? It's rejection and plotting going on here. Look at verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, in the hill of Hakilah? which is south of Jashiman. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hands. Another city still within the people of God, David's own people. And they turn on David. They're willing to turn David in, at least turn in his whereabouts to King Saul. You know, back... In the earlier parts of this chapter, Keilah betrayed David, but there was that great threat. They were willing to betray David, but, but Saul was going to come in and destroy their city if they didn't. Here the Ziphites don't seem to have any threat whatsoever. They initiate this discussion with Saul all by themselves. It seems like they have nothing to lose for not turning David in, maybe even nothing to gain for turning David in. But no surprise. God's anointed is a suffering one. God's anointed is opposed. His will is resisted. He is not recognized as the king. He came to his own in there among the Ziphites, and his own people did not receive him. Really the only thing noteworthy in this scene with David and the Ziphites, is Saul's speech in response to the Ziphites. Look at verses 21 to 23. Saul said in response to this idea from the Ziphite messengers, may you be blessed by the Lord. Know the, the religious speech. It's all over this chapter and the next, which should remind us that religious speech is, is no great example of someone's heart. May the Lord bless you. 
for you've had compassion on me. Notice the pity party there. You've had compassion on me. In the last chapter, I was just complaining to my, to my men that no one cares for me. Can you imagine saying that to soldiers? No one cares for me. He did. But here, the Ziphites care for him, and he's glad. In verse 22, he says, Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and then come back to me with sure information. But now notice this turn, this self-conscious, self, this self-confident smugness. Then I will go with you, and if he's in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Did you follow, follow the logic there? They were coming to him saying, we know where he is. And he said, go make sure, really, really sure, because he's really, really sneaky. And then come back and tell me where he is exactly. And then I will go and find him among the thousands in Judah. No, you won't, dummy. They'll tell you. Right? You see? Taking credit once again. Well, this is David and the Ziphites. David is rejected. They plot against him. In the last scene of chapter 23, Saul and his men are now all the more breathing down the neck of David and his men. The fifth is a near encounter. It's not really a close-up encounter. It's a near encounter between David and Saul. And what we see is threat and deliverance. David keeps fleeing further and further south, further and further away from home. And Saul keeps pursuing. He's relentless. In these last verses of chapter 23, Saul gets some specific, actionable data, some intel, no doubt from the Ziphites. And so in verse 25, it says, he pursued after David. In verse 26, the picture is painted of a valley, and David is up on one side, and Saul is up on the other. That usually means a battle's about to come, or David's going to be attacked. It, it, it kind of sets the framework for something ominous to come. And the drama builds. You see, in the second half of verse 26, David was hurrying to get away from Saul. In verse 27, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. The speed of the story is picking up, isn't it? It's going downhill. The drama is building. Conflict is about to reach its climax. And just that fast, threat turns to deliverance. Deliverance. Verse 27, just then. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went up against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Saul has to leave because something more pressing is at hand. No doubt it's not that the Philistines were starting to creep into Israel's land and get their people. They're getting closer to Saul. 
They're getting closer to Saul. Saul doesn't mind when they're attacking his people elsewhere. But, but it has to be that they're getting closer to Saul, and hence it threatens him. And hence he's forced to deal with the pesky Philistines. And David is saved. Irony of ironies, David is saved by Philistines. By Philistines. Oh, indirectly, yes. Unknowingly, sure. But not accidentally. Not luckily. All in God's providence. All God's doing. God would not permit Saul to get David. Now as we turn the page to the next chapter, chapter 24, that close call of the last scene of chapter 23, Saul breathing down David's neck, it's about to come to a a battle and and the Philistines come and, and Saul leaves. That close call is now enhanced. The camera zooms in for a much closer encounter between these two kings. This is the sixth encounter, David and Saul a close encounter. This takes up the whole chapter, chapter 24. But it can be broken into three different parts. Let's read it three sections at a time. The first being what we might call opportunity and mercy. Opportunity and mercy, a famous scene in the Bible. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. What a scene. I mean, what a scene. Think about, in God's providence, the chances of, of David and Saul being accidentally in the same cave. These were giant caves, by the way. You could park a whole bus in them. David and his men are deep in the cave. Saul's got to go. Thankfully, we're not told these kind of details in the Bible too often. 3,000 men out in the wilderness, this happened a lot. A lot. Saul has to go relieve himself. Literally in the Hebrew, it's he lifted up, and it lifted up his garment and his ankles were exposed. He's going number two. Okay, you were wondering, right? It is that one. And these caves must have been intricate and, and odd. They're not flat. It must be some way in which David can stealthily, sneakily come behind Saul while he's going to the bathroom, get the corner of his long kingly robe, and cut a corner of it off. 
he cut a corner of the king's robe. As we'll see in just a minute, it's proof that David could have killed him, but it's also symbolic. He cut off a corner of his robe, his kingly robe. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 15 when the prophet Samuel said, Saul, you're done. The Lord has taken away your kingdom. Started to walk away. Saul grabbed Samuel's robe and it tore. Samuel thought, perfect illustration. And he said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and he's given it to a neighbor, neighbor of yours. So symbolic, right? David has cut off a corner. He's cut off Saul's authority in a sense. He's, he's, in a sense, symbolically laid claim to the throne. And hence, he feels bad for cutting off the corner of Saul's robe afterwards. Verse 5 says, David's heart struck him. It's an opportunity for revenge, if we're thinking humanly. It's an opportunity simply to take what is rightfully yours, isn't it? But David does neither. He's David the merciful. His men see what any of us would have saw, opportunity. And they may have even gone a little too far when they said in verse 4, Here's the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You look back in 1 Samuel, there's no record of God ever saying that. They're reading into the circumstances. God didn't say, as soon as you get this day to take him out, take him out. And David knows that. And so in verse 7, he persuaded his men to back down, to chill out, to let Saul go. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, it's much stronger than he persuaded his men. It's he tore them down with his words. They must have been riled up. They must have been thinking, David, it's just not you here. We're in danger. We're, we let him go. We could be killed. And so they reason. Let's get him. Let's get him. Now's the moment. No, no, no. He tore them down with his words and would not let them. David's men are much like Jesus' disciples. We already saw in chapter 23 that David's men were fearful and retreating and it reminds us of the disciples who got nervous when the heat started to get on them. And now in chapter 24, David's men are taking matters into their own hands. At least they want to. They're thinking merely according to human wisdom. Remember Peter's bold words when the Lord said that he'd be going to the cross? May it never be, Lord. Such a wrong move that Jesus responded with these words, Get behind me, Satan. Remember Peter's reaction to Jesus' arrest in the garden? He drew out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. He's thinking merely according to human wisdom. Now we see a second scene or, or part of the story in chapter 24. We could call this confrontation and confidence. Verses 8 to 15. Here, David sneakily falls, Saul, uh, follows Saul out of the cave and addresses him, and then he launches into a, a lengthy speech, one of confrontation and confidence in the Lord. He reasons with Saul first, verse 9 and 10. He says, 
Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. We've been reading in earlier chapters how Saul has this conspiracy theory growing. Some of it's wrong information from his cronies and some of it's just his own brain. He thinks David is out to get him. He thinks David is going to destroy him. And so he's thinking simply, I have to intervene and stop that. I have to kill him before he kills me. David here shows that's nowhere near the case. Here's proof. He shows him the proof in verse 11. See, my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then he launches into his confidence in the Lord. In verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? A nobody? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David trusts God with the injustices of this life. Let me say that again. David trusts God with the injustices of this life. We should remember Romans 12. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I suppose it wouldn't be inappropriate for me right here to insert some qualifications about you can't be someone's doormat and you shouldn't let someone take advantage of you. And there is a time to stand up for justice when you're the object of injustice. And I feel zero need to give you any more of those qualifications because we are not balanced on this front, are we? We are not balanced. You, you know already uh, all the ways in which and reasons for which you should fight for your rights. That's in us. You don't have to teach a kid that. You don't have to teach American Christians that. But what we do need to hear again and again, what we do need to check ourselves with again and again, is God, God takes care of vengeance. God takes care of wrath. In this world, the scales of justice will bounce back and forth and never be even until, until the new heaven and new earth, until a fire which burns and will not be put out. So is there injustice at your work? Have you been passed over because someone has an agenda? Is there a family member who mistreats you? Have you been misrepresented among good friends? Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. 
Be like David, trust God to deal with the injustices of this life. You'll never be able to keep up if you don't buy into that program. We should also see that David trusts God for his promises which have not yet come to light. We don't get all the promises at once. Well, we get the promises, we don't get the fulfillment all at once. So it is with David. He knows what the promise is. It's assured to him by Jonathan. It'll be assured to him by Saul himself in just a minute here. But not yet. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know how. And so he waits. He trusts the Lord. Last thing we see is Saul's response. We see recognition and request. Saul recognizes what David says, agrees to it, and he makes one small request. You see verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you've dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home. And David and his men went up to the stronghold. Recognition and request. David the merciful. But don't fool yourself about Saul. This won't last. This is a temporary moment of clarity. An accurate one, yes, but we'll see as the pages turn. It's not now um, lion laying down with the lamb. This Wednesday at our Lord's Supper service, we'll look more closely at Saul's request here at the end of chapter four, 24. We'll look at what David swears to Saul and how that gets fulfilled later on in the story into 2 Samuel. We'll leave it there for now then. But as you're no doubt accustomed to by now, as we've gone through 1 Samuel, we would be remiss, we would be negligent if we didn't make sure we've covered enough about how Yes, we look to David for a model of trusting God amidst unjust suffering, but we got to look past David. we got to look much ahead of David because David is like an arrow pointing us ahead. And there are so many parallels between David and Jesus that should come to mind. We've seen a few of them already this morning as we've studied 1 Samuel 23 and 24. But here are a few more. When we think of David in these chapters... Shouldn't we remember how Jesus responded to Peter's sword-swinging ways that evening in the garden? Where he said to him, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? His mercy was not an indication of weakness. Remember how Jesus responded to Pilate when, when asked if he was really a king? Jesus said in John 18, yes, I am. 
But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Remember how Jesus responded to those who were crucifying him? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Messiah is a suffering Messiah, a merciful, suffering Messiah. It's the way it had to be. The Christ has to suffer. You see this in the New Testament over and over. Jesus himself saying in Luke 24, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory? You see Paul preaching in Acts 17. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. See in Acts 26, I stand here testifying of what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. He must suffer. And Jesus told his followers, it is by many tribulations, trials and tribulations, that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus suffered in a way that is different than any way we will suffer, even should we be crucified. Jesus suffered as both a payment for sin and a path to follow. David was a path to follow. Jesus was a path to follow, but he was also a payment for sin. And this payment and path picture here is summarized so well in 1 Peter 2. Listen to this gospel nugget of four verses. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, just like David. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And here's the payment. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we would be forgiven, yes, and also that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What a humble, sacrificial, merciful Savior. He is Jesus the merciful. There is none like him. We are not merciful. We don't forgive those who sin against us very well. But Jesus taught us that the economy of the gospel should be shaping our minds in such a way that those who are forgiven get forgiveness. They get it up here. They give it out then. Those who have received mercy, they're getting better at giving out mercy. They like doing what God does. They like being who Jesus is. He's a friend. He's merciful. Let's pray for his help now. Father, we pray you would help us as Christians to forgive others, to show mercy to others, even more so to strengthen each other in you. Help us by your grace to rejoice that we have such a friend in Jesus. Let us now sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving and helping, keeping and loving. We praise you, Father, that he is with us to the end. What a great Savior we have. And we rejoice in his name this morning. Amen.